From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review with your first show of 2024. Hope you are doing well out there. And uh, if you are back at work for the first time in uh, a long time, uh, I'm sure it feels like, or maybe a short time if you had a really good holiday, uh, I hope that it is going well. And if you are maybe one of those lucky uh, few or many out there who are still on holiday, I hope that you are enjoying it and uh, are soaking up the last few rays uh, of holiday time before work and school, I suppose, in particular, gets back on the 15th. Uh, but we have a great show for you regardless of your position in life and uh, as always we are bringing you what's hot and what is going on so what do we have on the show for today so we're going to be looking at a few things later on in the show uh, about 22 we're going to be looking at the politics of this year what is going on in the world because uh, there are a number of elections that are coming up a number of things that are going to be occurring so what should we, we be looking out for in 2024, particularly in South Africa and America, around the world? So that's, uh, of course, a big one. We are going to be taking a trip down memory lane uh, to Musenberg Schul 100. I attended uh, the Musenberg Schul's 100 uh, celebration over the holidays in Cape Town, and I will be doing a report back on that. We're going to be finding out about why eels are important to your latest Israeli startup and uh, will be starting off uh, immediately as of this moment about the hottest issue in uh, South African foreign affairs uh, just right at the moment, which is the issue of the ICJ and Israel. So that is what is on the show uh, today. And uh, as always, we always appreciate your engagement. So if you want to SMS us, 34519, that is the SMS line. You can telegram us 061-895-1019 and we'll be very, very happy to take any of your perspectives that you might have uh, as you uh, roll around in our world today. So let's do start off with this issue of the ICC, ICJ, which is actually going to be what I'm starting off with. It's not the ICC. And what does it actually mean? What is South Africa's case? What are the implications? I will be giving a a bit of a a summary now of the best that I can bring you from what I've read and what I understand. But if you want to get a a proper in-depth look at the two big parts of this, uh, the two best people to speak to are uh, the one, well, not to read up on rather, is Pumlani Majosi, who uh, you know as a regular commentator on this show. He's done a piece in Politics Web today talking about the geostrategic involvement of South Africa in this and I think it's worth reading so if you are on politics whereby I would encourage you to go look at that and then Ivo Fechter at The Daily Friend has put together the technical basis uh, and connections on this particular issue so if you want to look up that and understand this uh, a little bit more he has done quite a good job so Ivo Fechter and Pumlani Majosi if you read those two 
you will get a South African perspective on this pretty quickly. So yeah, those are your, your, your two big guys. So let's just unpack it quickly and see what it is. Let's start with the technical side. So there was initially quite a lot of confusion. And if you're still confused, don't be uh, concerned. It is a very arcane part of uh, law, this whole thing. So a lot of people initially thought that we were being taken to the International Criminal Court, the ICC. So that has occurred, but it was South Africa had done that quite some time ago. And what has happened now is a referral to the ICJ. So what is the difference, you might ask? It's a very good question. The ICC, the International Criminal Court, is a convention court, right? In other words, people who sign up to the International Criminal Court uh, Charter uh, are, are signed up to it, and then you are subject to its uh, jurisdiction, effectively, for different sorts of issues. And the ICC's particular mandate has to do with individuals, not to do with uh, larger conflict. So you will see, for example, the ICC threatened to arrest Putin at some point. There has been referrals of the ICC uh, in Africa to uh, to uh, the Laws Resistance Army, uh, to a, a range of others. And it's often used where, uh, particularly in Africa, governments or others don't believe that the judiciary can handle a particular case, then they get the ICC to do it. So that is uh, that is the particular that is the particular case that um, that that is in with the ICC, and it, it's normally taken against particular people. Israel has never been a signatory to the ICC, be, precisely because it doesn't believe that the process that uh, the ICC works on is a, a fair one or a proper one, uh, and so it rather. Uh, doesn't get involved and if you don't sign up for it it's not uh, eligible therefore to be brought to the ICC doesn't have a jurisdiction over Israel's actions there's uh, there are some some moves to try and make it but uh, at this point that's not the big issue what we're talking about at the moment is the ICJ that's the International Court of Justice is based in The Hague and it actually is kind of like a inside you the United Nations dispute resolution organization effectively it is a court but what it actually does is basically try and deal with disputes between different countries that are member nations on the un now because israel is signed up to the genocide convention which it does believe in because israel's not trying to commit a genocide obviously uh, and is also a member of the un it is subject to the icj it hasn't always had a very good relationship with the ICJ uh, over a number of years. There's two kind of ways that you can get involved with the ICJ if you're a country. The one is you can ask for an advisory opinion. So a country or a group can go to a court and say, look, there's a legal issue out there and we want your perspective on it. And so from time to time, you'll get countries who will, who will go to the court to get an opinion. It's not binding, uh, but it, it does have the weight of the court that's on it. Um, one of the times when Israel had to deal with this was when it was building the security fence and there was an application to the ICJ to get such an advisory opinion uh, on, on the question of this uh, issue. So ICJ was, uh, was used there. And in that particular case, Israel chose not to participate. It said it didn't believe that the ICJ had 
any jurisdiction over a matter that had to do with it building a security fence, and so it didn't actually uh, get involved there. Uh, then, after that, there, there is this case. Now, this is a second way around in which um, one can get involved in ICJ, and that's where one country refers another country to the ICJ. Now, normally it's between two warring parties or something like that, so the, the classic case was Ukraine and Russia. And there, uh, there was uh, Ukraine referred Russia to the, the ICJ to say, you're invading us. Uh, and the, the Russians said, well, we don't care. And they carried on. But there's another way in which, because everyone is basically signed up to this UN charter, other countries can actually, that have no party to the conflict, can actually get involved. So we saw, for example, the Gambia, which has no uh, real connection to uh, the country of Myanmar, uh, referring it to the ICJ for uh, a consideration because of Myanmar's um, focus on on its uh, alleged genocide or actual genocide of people in its country and what was going on there. So there was a um, uh, uh, the, there, there was this issue with the Rohingya in in Myanmar and. And the and, and the Gambia, who's not really party to this, actually went and and asked um, the ICJ to intervene. And the ICJ said, well, because everyone is connected to this uh, in, in terms of the convention, they're actually able to do it. So there is precedent to this. And uh, what we're going to be doing uh, after the break is then discussing what has the South Africa-Israel connection got to do with all of this uh, and we're going to be exploring what South Africa is trying to do with this particular case. I'm Benji Shulman and this is 101.9 High FM. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review and we are talking today amongst other things about South Africa's referral of Israel to the ICJ. So as I said just before the break there is this uh, issue where one state outside of a conflict can actually refer another state for uh, whatever purposes, uh, particularly if stuff is uh, signed up for. So Israel is signed up for the Genocide Convention because uh, it, uh, this was something which it takes very seriously, given that uh, the, the, the treaty and some of the definitions are actually drawn up by, by Jews themselves in the wake of the Holocaust. So Israel does take this very seriously. And there, there is a question about whether Israel should have taken the same route as it did in uh, in 2014 and ignored this. Uh, this actually is the opinion of, um, uh, uh, of, of some of the Israeli opposition, uh, particularly M.K. Lieberman, uh, who, who has said that he thinks that uh, you're giving this thing too much airtime. But on the other hand, f- uh, the crime of genocide is a very serious one. The charge of genocide is a very serious one. Uh, and Israel takes quite a lot of steps to make sure that it doesn't harm civilians in in its uh, processes of prosecuting the war against Hamas. And so it has opted uh, to defend itself I- in the court. So that is what is uh, going on here and, and what the process is. The first part of the process will start around Thursday or Friday. There seems to be some sort of preliminary hearing. And what we would do uh, and see 
is is I, th- I think the preliminary groups and the lawyers actually putting their cases forward and, and some of the discussions whether they're standing all, all sorts of stuff <clears throat> I believe some technical issues that are going to take place one interesting thing or two interesting things that I'll take a message that every country that is involved in one of these disputes gets a judge that can go and sit on the court. So we actually have a judge as South Africa. There are 10 judges that was appointed uh, in a sort of permanent basis to the court. Uh, and um, one of them, his name is Judge Tidy, but he's apparently only starting in February. And so as a result, he... Um, he will be uh, not there when the court starts. And so uh, instead we sent uh, Deputy Chief Justice, former Deputy Chief Justice, Tekan Motseneki, who's going to be the South African uh, representative, which uh, is uh, extremely interesting. So he will be operating in, in, in that regard. And the Israelis have sent as their judge a representative, Edward Barak, uh, who is, I suppose, most famous for making the Israeli Supreme Court kind of into a, a more constitutional court. He in, engaged in what was called the, the judicial revolution. And before October 7th was seen as the architect uh, of the so-called judicial, judicial reform um, d- debate that was so prevalent in Israeli society, and much reviled on the right uh, for all of this. And now, interestingly, he's being sent uh, as Israel's champion to, uh, to the court. So... So that is something else. Uh, there are 10 justices that come from all over the world. There's a, the, the president of the, of the court is an American. There is uh, the UK, Australia, I believe Somalia, uh, Lebanon, I think. Uh, there's a number of others. You can look it up on the Internet. And there's basically this court that goes uh, from around the world. So it will be very interesting to see how that goes. So those are some of the, the, the technicalities. Let's look at the case that South Africa is trying to make here and, and what it's trying to do. Interestingly, there isn't a lot of international law experience on the South African team that they've sent. Uh, there is John Dugard, who is a more of a legal academic, who's done a lot of work on international law. Uh, and, but you can see that they were concerned that they didn't have enough expertise because there's also another professor, Nax Duplessis, <coughs> as well who is uh, not a lawyer at all, but uh, is an academic. And then there's a number of, um, uh, a number of legal people who uh, have more like constitutional, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, constitutional backgrounds. So uh, Tembeka Ngatobi, uh, who you would have seen uh, in some of the cases against the government. Uh, there's Elisa Hassin, who has done a lot of governmental work. A lot of lawyers who are connected to the government. Uh, and uh, this, by the way, must be costing an absolute fortune. And one of the big questions that I think is going to come out of this is who's actually paying for all of these lawyers? Because lawyers like this don't come cheaply at, at all. And the team is enormous. There's a good five or six, uh, at least, juniors and advocates and uh, other attorneys and these legal academics. It's a, it's a large team that they've put together for this. And uh, these people charge very much by the hour. So it will be interesting to see how much is this costing and who's paying for it. And in particular, I suppose, um, if there's been any donations towards it from outside parties. So if it's the Qataris or the Iranians or anything like that, I suspect we're going to start finding out pretty soon 
how this is all being paid for. So uh, who's paying for it and what South Africans are not getting uh, what services because of uh, this whole this whole process. So, so that is another important thing to consider. Then on top of that, you need to look at the actual case. So the Genocide Convention, and you can look at it uh, in, in Ivo Fechter's PC, does quite a good job of looking through it uh, and and going through what it is. It is quite broad, uh, which is is kind of interesting. So there is uh, a lot that you can actually see about who dies and when can they die. And there's talks about destroying a people and there's, there's quite a lot of like quite expansive language. But a lot of it also goes down to intent. And so what you'll find is that in the report, they spend a lot of time on other previous reports that accusing Israel of a bunch of stuff, uh, which is not relevant, obviously, to this particular case. And then on top of that, in the last few pages, what they do is they uh, sort of go through different remarks made by different Israelis on the focus of the, uh, uh, of, of the conflict. Now, one of the things that should be said is that uh, the extreme right in Israel is, uh, as quite often is the case, doing Israel a lot of damage because of the very inflammatory things that it often says about all sorts of stuff. And so you'll find extreme rightists uh, actually being quoted, uh, and it shows the kind of damage that these sorts of groups do uh, to Israel in the international arena because of the kind of uh, inflammatory things that they say because groups like this then pick it up and use it as so-called proof uh, that Israel has this intent for, for genocide. But the case really hinges actually on a few key, uh, a few key uh, pieces, um, which are very interesting. So, for example, uh, they have quoted from a member of the Knesset, apparently, uh, some particular thing, except that the, this particular member of Knesset doesn't exist, which is kind of interesting. They also quote at length from President Herzog. And what's interesting is they've, in order to try and make the case, they've had to quote him out of context. P- President Herzog, as you might be aware, is a very careful and considered man. Uh, and he went to great pains uh, to differentiate between civilians and Hamas in his statements. And they've had to try and uh, twist it so it makes it sound like he is going to be uh, attacking civilians. And the same thing with Netanyahu and Gallant and a range of actual leaders who are actually involved with the process of prosecuting the war. Basically, the more inflammatory that the statements are, the less likely that those people are to actually be in control of any real or particular processes when it comes to uh, when it comes to actually prosecuting the war. So I think that the South Africans, on a pure legal basis, are going to have a hard time doing what they want, which is to prove intent. But it might not actually be that this is what the South Africans are trying to do. Um, they, they are maybe looking for another outcome. They realize that uh, the genocide a claim is a high bar to meet. And indeed, it has been a high bar to meet in places like Serbia and, and, and others that are, that are quite important. Uh, and by the way, if you want to actually see some of the, the, the I don't know what you would call it, um, the incorrections or the, or the misrepresentations being made by the South African team, it's worth having a look at uh, at Eisenberg 55, that's A-I-Z-E-N-B-E-R-G, who 
uh, is uh, the account run by Fania Oz Salzberger, who is Amos Oz's daughter, not exactly a crazy right winger. Uh, and uh, sh- um, she has put together all of the examples uh, where, where the South African team has actually um, has actually basically fabricated the evidence. Um, so so it's worth going to see that as well but it looks like the South African team um, uh, it looks like the South African team is um, is trying potentially for something else because under the under the genocide convention there is uh, and the ICJ there is a way in which <coughs> you can actually call for parties to actually uh, create a ceasefire and um and and I think what the South Africans might be trying to do is, as well as create this impression in the minds of uh, international world opinion that uh, that there is this uh, grounds for genocide, even if there isn't, they are trying to enforce a ceasefire and basically backing Hamas as a to to try and get a ceasefire so that Hamas can have less pressure taken on it um, in the name of some sort of humanitarian grounds. And and I think that what what we're seeing more and more is um, is what we're seeing more and more is South Africa either implicitly or explicitly working with Iran and Qatar uh, and others in the region who have anti-Israel agendas to try and um, drive an, an anti-Israel agenda in 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 the in the world. South Africa has become a kind of uh, di- sort of dictatorial democracy if you like or um or, or yeah basically we're we're a democracy at home but uh, we support dictators abroad and and that's kind of been what the focus is for their um for their approach and so we saw for example that when south africa was talking about the icc referral uh saw ramaposa announced it from his uh meeting after meeting in Qatar. we've had hamas come here and meet in South Africa. The government is claiming it didn't meet Hamas, but uh, there were government ministers in some of those meetings. Uh, we have uh, potentially other armed groups who met here in the, in the last while. Uh, of course, uh, only a couple weeks after October 7th, South Africa was in Iran. So I think that this might be part of using South Africa's democratic legitimacy to try and drive uh, uh, the agenda of uh, of, of Hamas and, and Iran in the region of which South Africa are key allies. So we will see what actually happens going forward in the next uh, couple of days um, and and see what actually is going on when it comes to uh, when it comes to this, uh, this issue. So that's a bit of a backgrounder. Uh, and uh, again, Pumlani Majorzi, uh, if you want to understand the geostrategic politics of it, if you want to get to the nitty-gritty, Eva Fechter's article, both very, very good options if you are trying to find out why uh, Israel and South Africa are going to be having this argument at the ICJ. Now, Diskim Wellness Clinic for Adults offers convenient and professional care to help you manage health risks. Whether you're having regular wellness checks, such as blood pressure or cholesterol, Diskem Wellness Clinics offers you a broad range of health screening services, including female health screening with pap smears, family planning, pregnancy screening. 
First and affordable with care, find your nearest Discam Wellness Clinic inside. Discam Pharmacies, better health starts here. So I have to say a very interesting article actually just came up this morning, which I thought was uh, fantastic and and, uh, really interesting. Um, And I just thought I would have to definitely bring it to your your attention because I just thought it was amazing. So a new Israeli startup called Elpos, uh, sorry, Stakeholder, right? It's called Stakeholder, S-T-E-K-H-O-L-D-E-R. Stakeholder Foods has created a plant-based 3D printed eel. That's right. You heard me correctly. A plant-based 3D printed eel, uh, which it eventually looks to boost with cultivated eel cells. Now, this is valued at $4.3 billion. That's correct. $4.3 billion. Um, not the not the uh, not the company. The company is uh, is a startup. But the the what's valued at four point three billion dollars is the global eel market. And uh, this is because eel is very very popular. Uh, as those of you who um, eat a lot of sushi might know, uh, in um, in in culinary dishes in Asia, and so. Uh, unfortunately for if you're an eel uh, you are actually a little bit under threat at the moment due to overfishing and there's been a lot of um, popularity around this fish um, particularly in Japan where a lot of the stuff is consumed so that is the particular case uh, that is going on and I guess what they're trying to do is get this plant-based substitute for the eel put actual eel cells in it so it tastes I don't know, slimy. Uh, my eel uh, has not been, uh, I haven't eaten eel lately. Um, so it's a, a, been a bit of a problem. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it might be kind of interesting if we get eel substitute uh, in a local brocha uh, and kiddish coming to you in your um, sushi. Although I'm not sure that eels are kosher, but maybe substitute eels are, I'm not sure. But uh, if you're not kosher, I'd love to know from you Three four five one nine, or or that's your SMS line, or you can telegram us oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine. Would you eat a substitute eel uh, if it was plant based with eel cells? Uh, I'd like to I'd like to find that out because it's kind of fascinating what you can start a start up for today. Uh, so yeah, that is. I just thought we had to bring this to your attention because, you know. All you eel eaters out there are, I'm sure, a little bit hungry. Um, and uh, and now you have an option if you don't want to eat the poor eels. Actually, we have eels in South Africa. I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, that actually have a re- quite a remarkable, uh, I don't know what you would even call it. Like in the same way as salmon, uh, you know, a salmon spawns out in a river and then they swim down the river and go into the ocean and swim around and come back. So we have eels in South Africa who do the exact same thing. Uh, they actually, uh, a lot of the rivers in KZN have these eels and the eels uh, give birth up in the highlands of the waters and they, they swim all the way down into the ocean. Uh, they swim around and then a part of their life cycle, they came back. So maybe this eel startup will help our eels as well. You never know. Uh, I am Benji Shulman and I am, You are listening to the New Blue Review on 101.9 and we will be sliding back with you just after the break. 
This is the new Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the new Blue Review. Welcome back to the program on this Monday morning. Now, uh, I happen to be in Cape Town um, this week. this December, I wasn't necessarily planning to be there uh, for that long, actually, uh, this year. But when I got there, uh, I was told by a number of people that I, since I was staying in Musenberg, uh, that I should uh, perhaps um, check out the Musenberg 100 uh, centenary that was happening for the Musenberg Show, which I duly did. And... Um, and so that is what um, I did. And I just should say that uh, there was somebody who came up to me during the, um, during the, the engagement for the, the 100 centenary of the Musenberg Show. And uh, they said to me that they had listened to my, uh, my show just before uh, December holidays, which uh, you might uh, have listened to as well, and that uh, they were going to try out one of the suggestions that I had done on the top five things to do uh, in Cape Town that you might not be aware of. So to that person, I'm not going to mention your name on air, uh, but uh, I hope that you did do that and that you did enjoy it uh, and that it was any good. And thank you so much for actually uh, listening to some of my suggestions. That was uh, very cool. But, uh, but yeah, I have to say well done to the Musenberg community, for, uh, Rabbi Ryan, for putting together... Uh, a great uh, centenary celebration. The centenary celebration went over like seven days, I think. It was like a whole week's thing. And what was so cool, you know, I'm not someone who's really been down to Cape Town, certainly not to Musenberg. I've been once or twice. It's a lovely place. Uh, but some people are almost religious about their time in Musenberg when they go in December. And it's, I found it a lot, much quieter than the rest of Cape Town, uh, especially like Sea Point uh, and, and things like that. Uh, and so... It, it was very nice for that. And of course, it's the one part of Cape Town where you can actually swim, first of all, because it's not very rough uh, and it is very flat. And it's also not very cold uh, compared to the rest of Cape Town. So that is uh, very nice. So when the wind is not blowing, it is a, a really nice uh, beach. And so when people go down, uh, the shul, which has been operating for 100 years, uh, is, is filled up with Joe Burgers. But if you go during the year, there are also regulars who uh, keep the, the minion going uh, particularly over Shabbat and they have a minion and a, and a rabbi uh, and, they, and they operate and what was nice about the centenary is that people who also grew up in Musenberg because there was a historically a very large Jewish uh, community in Musenberg I didn't know this uh, but I, they, they said at the centenary that there were as many as 1200 families that lived in Musenberg and around uh, and, and today in the southern suburbs of Cape Town which is Musenberg and Fishhook and Constantia and all of these others, uh, there are uh, 1,500 families. So, so it's much smaller than it was. But at the time, there were a lot of uh, Jewish families who used to live there all year round, which is quite remarkable. And so because it was the centenary, people came from Israel and from England and uh, from Johannesburg and from other parts of Cape Town because they had used to live in Musenberg and obviously had moved away. Uh, and so for those people as well, I think it was quite special to see the shul. The shul is in very good shape and very good nick. And it was also completely full uh, because everyone had come because they were either there on holiday or had come specially for the centenary. Uh, as part of the centenary celebrations, there was uh, the two, two chief rabbis, uh, uh, Warren Goldstein uh, and uh, Chief Rabbi Mervis, uh, Ephraim Mervis of 
of England, uh, who of course is a Cape Townian rabbi, who uh, then eventually became the chief rabbi of Ireland and then eventually the chief rabbi uh, now of the UK. And they had a very uh, open and honest discussion about a variety of topics. They both gave different joshes on the Friday night and the Saturday. And then also uh, did a Q&A section where you could ask anything of the rabbis and people asked all sorts of questions concerning the community, concerning government relations, concerning what is it like to deal with royalty if you are the chief rabbi of England, which is also very interesting. Uh, also, as part of the celebrations, there was a big Friday night dinner and uh, as, as well as a big uh, Kiddush in the, in, on the Saturday and, uh, and, and those were, and as well as a after Shabbat bit of a concert um, from some locals uh, and, and Joe Burgers doing a little bit of singing uh, at Havdalah. So that was very nice. Uh, that was the part that I stayed for, but uh, if you were around for a few more days afterwards, you also could uh, engage in the delights of learning surfing with uh, some Jewish surfers that operate in Musenberg still to this day. Uh, they also had the historic uh, walkabout tour of Musenberg, because if you go to Musenberg, you will see there's a lot of historic buildings. There are from mining magnets, uh, not quite in Musenberg, but sort of just next door. There's the Rhodes, Rhodes, Memorial, uh, Rhodes Cottage. Uh, then there is, um, there's also a couple of the other mining magnets, the other name has, has escaped me. But if you look around Musenberg, there's a lot of historic buildings uh, and, and the town plays a kind of important role in that part of the coast, being near Simonstown, which is the port area, and the fishing stuff near Kalk Bay. Uh, and, and of course, you've got the historic uh, beach houses, which are the famous colorful beach houses, which they've just renovated, uh, that are on the beach. So there's all sorts of interesting historical elements, the, the, the train station, which is important, all of, all of that, uh, which is, is kind of crucial to Musenberg. And then also a cemetery tour, as well as uh, Shachritz on the mountain, where they were going to... Uh, go up the mountain and do shachis and there's it's not only table mountain in um in cape town there's also apparently musenberg mountain so that was uh what was there and uh, i think it was just a, a very well done event people were relaxed they were in a december mood uh, they were enjoying the davening they were enjoying the engagement with uh, people that were coming from far and wide including the dignitaries and uh, it was, uh, I think, a, a very special event. And I think also with a bit of an accent on the future. Where does the community go now? What does the shul do now? Uh, how, how does it engage people going forward? So I think that that uh, was a very interesting uh, discussion. And certainly a very different way uh, to have a, a, um, a holiday in Cape Town. I think a lot of people go to... Uh, get away from it all when they go to Cape Town although if you're in Seapoint there's obviously the whole of Joburg that descends there uh, and there are probably more people than normal in Musenberg um, from the Jewish community but nonetheless I think uh, was a very interesting and special event and uh, one that I think shows the great history of our community in South Africa and, uh, and, and the sort of uh, events and things that can be pulled off to showcase that history in a way that's that's positive uh, in in what can be quite a, a difficult time uh, going forward. So, uh, yeah, that is uh, Musenberg. If you have if you were there or if you have any particular me memories of Musenberg, do send us a message. Three four five one nine is the SMS line, or you can telegram us on oh six one eight nine five one oh one nine. I'd love to hear from you uh, about what your experiences were. 
I am uh, Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High FM. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome back to the show. Uh, getting in your messages today. Uh, so thank you to all those people who have been sending in. Uh, someone who sent in anonymously says, Hi Benji, I think the ANC government can't deal with all their failures here in South Africa. So they are looking elsewhere to election near for the upcoming elections. Uh, yes, uh, that was to do with our RCJ discussion i think that's very relevant uh, and there's a question also about uh you know is the anc getting money from some of these uh anti-israel countries i think that's a, an important point which wasn't covered earlier uh carol kruger coming in and saying morning benji they used to call musenberg jusenberg when i was growing up in the 60s uh, <laughs> uh well, apparently they used to call it johannesburg as well but um Yes, I think that that is uh, an interesting uh, uh, thing. So thank you so much, Carol. I appreciate that. Uh, and if you want to SMS us any other um, things, please let us know. Russell Jacobs has uh, sent, sent us something on Telegram about 3D printed calamari. That's, uh, that's in reference to the discussion that we were having earlier about the problem of 3D printed eels uh, and and whether some Israeli technology companies were able to solve the problem of overfishing in eels by 3D printing them. So uh, thank you for that. I'm, 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 if I'm not doing eels, I'm definitely not doing calamari, but I do appreciate the offer, Russell. Um, before we finish up for that, I did say that we would talk about <coughs> the elections that are coming up. So it looks like 2024 is going to be like the Super Bowl of elections. Some 40 to 50 countries, depending on which uh, um, news outlet you're reading, and more than 2 billion people are expected to go to, uh, to the polls in, in 2024. Uh, and it's going to be, so it's going to be a big year. Uh, included in this is Bangladesh, uh, India, Pakistan, Taiwan, South Africa, America, Indonesia, um, India, I've mentioned as well. This is also on the list. Um, Mexico uh, is another one. The European Union has its own elections for internal MPs. Of course, the United States is a big one. That's uh, it's massive. Ghana, which is co- actually considered one of the most free countries in in on the continent, uh, more so even in South Africa, and um, and so it's going to be very very interesting to see how all of these elections actually go down. Uh, already we're starting to see uh, we're starting to see jockeying around the position in South Africa. We're not exactly sure when the elections will be called. Uh, constitutionally, I think they have to be called six months within the five years or four, four ish years since the last election. So that's sort of any time between May, I think, and August. So, or even April or August. Oh, excuse me. Um, so, so that could be a uh, that could be a big one, and uh, obviously we're starting to see potential for the ANC to drop before fifty percent. We've covered that issue extensively on the show, uh, and I'm sure that we will start to cover it more as the elections get closer. We're starting to see the American elections as well. So, so far, um, Biden uh, is still the undisputed uh, Democratic um, nominee, being the incumbent president. Uh, and although polls are showing him being extremely low in the general population, so the Democrats 
seem to like him, but the general population don't. And then uh, on the on the Republican side, there is uh, the three main challengers: uh, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Donald Trump. And Donald Trump kind of far and away uh, exceeding all of the others in the national polling. However, the early states, including uh, New Hampshire, uh, although not Iowa, who is the other uh, the other major state, uh, are showing uh, Trump losing. So it will be very interesting to see uh, if he can if he if his momentum gets interrupted by these early states, which does sometimes happen in these electoral campaigns. Uh, then there will be a question about uh, what. Uh, and if he is actually the nominee. If he does become the nominee, it will be the first time since 1892 that uh, two uh, presidential candidates, in other words, people that had previously been president, would actually run off against uh, one another. And uh, that apparently was quite a placid campaign. Uh, but this one, I think, is, is likely not to be. And uh, we don't exactly know what kind of Trump we're going to get uh, this time around should he become the nominee. So... Uh, that would be uh, certainly rather, uh, rather unusual, um, and uh, something we're going to have to watch. So all of those will be uh, big in, and uh, you'll have to uh, watch and see. And certainly we will cover that exclusively on the show, as we always do, being your favorite Jewish current affairs and culture show. Brings us to the end of the first show for 2024. Thank you so much for joining me, as always. Um, Thank you to the whole team who puts the show together. Uh, Senna, who is done general production. Uh, Craig, who pushes all the big red buttons. Vusi is on sound. And to you, dear listener, who joins us every single week, please do join us again next week on the New Blue Review.